The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by a guest speaker. The statements, views, and opinions presented in this message are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. That's online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Well, good morning, friends, and welcome to chapel. We are delighted that you are able to join us this morning. And it is my pleasure to introduce our guest speaker, Reverend James Lee, graduated from Westminster Seminary, California in 1991. And he participated, or was the church planter for New Life Presbyterian Church of La Jolla in 1994. And he has been serving as an evangelist and senior pastor since that time uh, at the church in La Jolla. He's married and has three children, and it is our pleasure to welcome him this morning. Thank you, brother. Thank you, Reverend Tedrick, and it's my great privilege and joy to be here. Uh, I'm grateful for the work of the seminary. I came here in 1987 not knowing anything about the Reformed theology uh, at the recommendation of my friend Steve Park, uh, who is also a graduate of the school. He, he invited me to come, and uh, to say the least, it has transformed my life in a powerful way. And so we are so great. I'm so grateful for the work of the seminary, and I'm so excited to hear about the great things that are uh, being done under the leadership of President Joel Kim and all the faculty and staff. So thank you so much for your work in this regard, and it's my great privilege to address uh, this chapel uh, today. Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel according to John, chapter 21, verses 15 through 17, a very well-known passage, and this is God's word. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Jesus and his disciples were sitting around a charcoal fire on the beach. There was no formal ceremony or banquet to mark the significance of this occasion, just some bread and fish laid out on the charcoal fire. But something momentous was taking place, especially for Peter. Jesus was restoring Peter to the apostolic office. As you all know, possibly only a few days ago, Peter denied Jesus three times over the course of one night. That was bad enough to effectively disqualify him from the apostolic office. The setting implied his disqualification as well. He was back to where he was, doing what he used to do, fishing, before Christ called him as an apostle, a fisher of man. Jesus had told the overly confident Peter how he would deny him, not just once, but three times. 
But Jesus not only predicted how miserably Peter would fail, he also prayed for him that his faith would not fail and he would be able to strengthen his brothers once restored. So Jesus came to restore him from his heart-wrenching disappointment in himself and his disqualification from his office. Jesus did so by commissioning Peter to shepherd his flock. Here, Jesus was directing Peter's attention to the pastoral aspect, aspect of his apostolic calling, the core of his apostolic responsibility. In this regard, I believe that this can serve as a model for our pastoral calling. And I realize that everybody here is not for the pastoral ministry track. But everyone is called to serve the church in some way. And I believe that Jesus, what Jesus does with Peter applies to everyone who desires to serve God and his people in any way. Let us renew our appreciation for the enormity of the task to feed the sheep of Christ. Think first of the people we have to feed. They are the sheep of Christ, for whom the great shepherd of the sheep lay down his life. Jesus loved them and desired them so much that he was willing to purchase them with his own blood. As Michael Card sang, could it be that you would rather die than to live without us? God cares for them and keeps them as the very apple of his eye. God promises, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. He assures them, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even they may forget, but I will never forget you. Behold, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. The people we are supposed to feed and take care of are these people that are so loved and cherished by God. And Ezekiel 34 tells us how fiercely God's anger burned against the false shepherds of Israel for exploiting and abusing God's flock. To feed such people is an enormous and noble task. Think secondly of why, to what end we are supposed to feed them. You see, Jesus did not sacrifice his life just to deliver us from the misery of hell, as marvelous as that work may be. He gave his life so that we might have life and have it abundantly. When we look at the size of the foundation, we can imagine how big the structure will be. How can the life we possess in Jesus Christ be anything other than abundant when we consider the costly price Jesus paid to give us that life? Those who feed the sheep of Christ must have this at the forefront of their minds and efforts. We do not feed them just to keep them alive. We feed them so they can thrive in living out the abundant life that Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, the chief shepherd, sacrificed his life to give them. And lastly, think of what we are to feed them with. It is what will give them life, eternal life, what will sustain their life in Christ throughout this world and their life in this journey and what will help them experience the abundant life 
that Christ came to give. What can do this other than the word of God, which alone has the power to bring those that are dead in their trespasses and sins to a new life in Jesus Christ? Which alone has the power to break the bond of sin and set a sinner free from the life of sin? Which alone has the power to lift us from despair to a living hope, turn our hatred against one another into love for one another, to replace our jealousy of other people with an appreciation for other people, to break down our pride and build us up in humility. Martin Luther saying, just one word of God can fill even that great enemy of ours, Satan. Over the years, how many times I had to walk into an impossible situation, seemingly an impossible situation, with trepidation and even doubt, wondering whether God's word will work in this difficult situation and come away amazed at the power of God's word to bring healing and strengthen the faith of God's people. The word of God is always efficacious. The word of God is always efficacious because it is a double-edged sword. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. If we receive God's word with faith, it will produce life. If we reject it, it will harden our heart. The word of God is always effective and efficacious. Oh, how carefully we must wield the word of God. So Paul charges all of us, do you do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. To whom was Jesus giving this awesome task? Peter. Peter was a colorful figure of high highs and low lows. At the moment Jesus was talking to him, he was in the lowest of his lows. Think of the setting, the charcoal fire. As Raymond E. Brown points out, the only other New Testament incidence is at Peter's denial in John 18, 18. Now, Jesus was talking to him across a charcoal fire. Not only that, as Jesus was recommissioning him, he asked Peter three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me? There was no mistaking it. Jesus was reminding Peter of the horrible mistake he made three times at a charcoal fire. Peter knew it too. So John says Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, but you see, if Jesus reminded Peter of his grave mistake, it was not to accuse him or condemn him. It was rather to restore him from guilt to forgiveness, from sorrow to relief, from betrayal to love, from denying Jesus to following Jesus, verse 19. From the life of catching fish again to the apostolic office and ministry. 
It must have been painful. I cannot imagine what Peter must have felt when Jesus kept asking these questions once, twice, three times. But, if, but imagine, if Jesus did not confront him in this way, what would have happened? He might have had to live with guilt for a long time, perhaps for the rest of his life. But you see, because Jesus confronted him and restored him, Peter no longer needed to live with that burden of guilt and shame any longer. What an act of grace. Let us appreciate the powerful significance of this interaction. Jesus was talking to a sinner who betrayed and denied him three times after swearing, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Peter was there in shame and humiliation. Yet, Jesus was commissioning this sinner with an enormous and the most noble task. It's truly amazing that Jesus should call a sinner to feed his beloved flock. Brothers and sisters, we should never forget this. We are all sinners. Can any of us say we are better than Peter? A prison warden once said, there are only two kinds of people in the world, sinners who have been caught and sinners who are not yet caught. As Peter didn't deserve this privilege to serve Christ by feeding his flock, we don't deserve it either. We should ever be in awe of this incredible truth and serve the Lord in gratitude. But on what basis did Jesus recommission Peter to his apostolic office and mission? What qualification can a sinner have to serve the Lord of glory? Jesus asked only one question. Do you love me? That is the foundational qualification. Not the only qualification, but the foundational one. I know that one of the reasons that you are here at the seminary is to meet other qualifications that the Bible sets forth for pastoral ministry. And unless you meet those qualifications, you will not be ordained. But Jesus is reminding us that none of those qualifications matter without this foundational one. Do you love Jesus? Loving Jesus is such a broad and lofty idea. And throughout church history, many have made amazing, incredible, done amazing and incredible things out of their love for Christ. And sometimes we wonder whether we have that kind of love for Christ. Thankfully, the kind of love that Jesus requires of us is not a perfect love. Think of Peter and his denial of Jesus, not just once, but three times. This, after he claimed that he was willing to die with him. What credibility did Peter have when he said that he loved Jesus? Not much. Yet Jesus restored him to his apostolic office and mission when Peter confessed his love for Jesus, this time with a sober measure of humility. 
But Jesus did ask Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? We cannot be sure what these are. Some say Peter's boat and nets and his worldly possessions. Others say the other disciples. Regardless of what these were, Jesus was saying that Peter should love Jesus more than anything. In doing so, Jesus was asserting his divine authority. No one can demand that kind of absolute love from men other than God himself. That is why the first commandment is to have no other gods before him, why the greatest commandment is to love the Lord with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Could Peter say he loved Jesus more than anything, especially after denying Jesus three times? But even more amazingly, how could Jesus accept Peter's answer and restore him to the apostolic office and mission? Jesus was able to do this because he was there to strengthen Peter's faulty and deficient love with his perfect and restoring love. Jesus appeared to him as the resurrected Lord who conquered death, of which Peter was so afraid to the point of denying Jesus, whom he thought he loved more than life itself. Jesus appeared to Peter as the sovereign Lord of history, whose words came true. Not just that Peter would deny him three times, but that his faith would not fail and he would strengthen his brothers. You see, Jesus was fulfilling his words, even though he had to die and rise again from the dead to do it. His love for Peter was not deterred by Peter's utter and miserable failure. Even death could not stop Jesus from loving Peter and fulfilling his promise for him. Oh, the relentless and efficacious love of Jesus Christ that is our hope. And how strong and firm is our hope. Because Christ's relentless and efficacious love is for us. This is the time and place to cultivate your love for Christ before you launch into the awesome task of feeding and tending to Jesus Christ precious sheep. As you are richly and abundantly fed by your professors, I hope that you cultivate your love for Christ. After I graduated, I realized how richly I was blessed every day in every class, just being fed with the richness of God's word. And you graduate from this place and you go and you are on your own and you realize how blessed this place is and how you have been fed so richly. But in this regard, I'd like to challenge you not to neglect your private devotion. It is easy to think, and I certainly did that, since we are, you are learning about God's word all the time, you don't need a time set aside in private communion with God. But let us not forget that even Jesus went away to be alone with God. 
Mother Teresa said, if you are too busy to pray, you are too busy. I assume if you are too busy to pray, you are too busy for your own good. This is especially true for those who would minister to God's people. If you are too busy to pray, to spend time with Christ alone simply because you love him so, can you say you are doing whatever you are doing for the glory of God? If you are too busy to pray because you have to perfect your sermon and and perfect your Bible study preparation, can you say that you are doing it for the glory of God? Are you sure you are not doing it for your own reputation as a good preacher and an insightful Bible teacher? Do you love Jesus more than your ministry and what praise and fame and prestige it can bring to you? Over the many years of doing ministry, I've learned a few important things about being a pastor. One of them is this. What really matters is not so much what you do or how many things you do, as what kind of person you are who is doing the ministry. What really matters is not how busy you are as a pastor, but what kind of person is doing that ministry. We need to walk close with God. We need to spend time in the presence of God. It seems like a very trying time will come against church and God's people in this country. Who can withstand the pressures and threats of the world against Christ and his church? Is it not those who love Christ more than these? How did Peter end up denying Jesus three times? Was it not because he followed Christ at a distance when he was arrested? Luke twenty-two fifty-four. 54. Is it just me that I feel disoriented and out of focus when I wake up in the morning? Maybe the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches got to me throughout the day before. Or the overnight sleep made me forget the important things. But don't you feel the need to reorient yourself to the true north star of your life and ministry the first thing in the morning? Don't you need to be reminded, though the challenges of life and ministry seem overwhelming at times, God is greater than all those? Don't you need to be reminded that we cannot make anything spiritually beneficial happen apart from the power of the Holy Spirit? That we are actually prone to mess things up with our false pride and baseless self-confidence? That we are only one mistake away from a scandal that will bring shame and dishonor to Christ's name and so much devastation to the flock of Christ? Nothing can mold and shape us into the men and women of God we need to be than to spend time in the presence of our wonderful Savior. Paul assures us that as ministers of the new covenant, we have a greater glory than Moses, whose face shone with 
brilliant glory after he went into the tent of meeting to speak with God. May the Lord send us out with that surpassing glory of the new covenant as we love him enough to sit in his presence and bask in his saving, restoring, and empowering love. What is the abundant life that we can share with God's people? Is it not for God's people to love Jesus more than these? May God bless us to be wonderful examples of that abundant life that comes in this beautiful fellowship with our wonderful Savior and his people. Let's pray. Well, Lord our God, we give you thanks and praise for your wonderful, restoring, forgiving love. Lord, we pray that you will always set our minds upon Christ and his loveliness and his beauty and his glory. I pray, Lord, that all that we do will be motivated and empowered by his love for us and our love for him. And I pray, Lord, that you will bless this seminary in its important work to produce future leaders who will be fearless, bold, and courageous, and loving shepherds of God's people and servants of God because they have been touched by the love of Jesus Christ and because they love him more than all these Thank you again for your marvelous grace, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2021, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way, and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.